the sixth chapter of Hebrews is where we're going to pick up this morning. Uh, Right up front, let me just let you know that this is probably the most difficult chapter in the whole New Testament. And so uh, it's a challenge before us today to really, you know, get hold of what the sixth chapter is talking about. So uh, we're going to do our best to do that. But um, the background, if you will uh, remember, uh, the background is that the, the writer of this letter is, um, he's exhorting his readers, these Jewish believers, um, he's really, uh, he's been rebuking them for their lack of spiritual progress, and he is exhorting them to move forward into spiritual maturity. And so let me pick up and let's uh, back up just a bit. Let me read from uh, verse 12 of chapter 5 on through the second verse of chapter 6, and that'll that'll connect us with the passage and the, the context here. So he says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God and have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrines of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. And so... We see there in the, the latter part of the fifth chapter, he's, um, there, there's the rebuke. For by the time you ought to be teachers, you need somebody to teach you again uh, the first principles of the oracles of God. And um, they, he, as we looked before, because of the dullness of their heart, uh, instead of growing and progressing and maturing, they had stagnated, really, and, and were starting to drift back. And so he um, is now calling them to move forward out of that position. So as we come to chapter six, therefore leaving the discussion of the elementary principles, let us go on to perfection. The word perfection here could be translated maturity. So this is the whole... um, objective of the uh, author here is that we, uh, they would go on to maturity. That's what God wants for us. He wants us to mature in our faith. And we mature in our faith by uh, taking heed, as we considered recently, we take heed to God's word. We, we apply it to our lives. We let it have its place in our lives. So in order to go on to maturity, he says we have to leave the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. And he gives an example of what he would refer to as the elementary principles. And they are uh, six things, repentance, faith, baptism, empowering, resurrection, and eternal judgment. So these are some of the fundamentals of the faith or the basics or the, or the foundational things. And of course, the foundational things are important. They're foundational. They're, they're the fundamentals. And in one sense, we never uh, outgrow these things, but we do get established in them so we don't have to keep going over them again and again and again because we're not getting it right. That's the that's the problem here uh, with these guys. They were stuck. They were in um, an arrested state of development. They were not developing as they should. And so um, they had to just keep going over the basics over and over and over again. 
Now, this is not uh, an exhaustive list of the foundational truths of the Christian faith, uh, but these particular things obviously had relevance to this group of Jewish believers. So, you know, just why he focuses in on these particular things, uh, we're not quite sure. Obviously, there, there was something uh, that was relevant for them. But real quickly, let's just look at what he's talking about here as the um, elementary things. Number one, repentance. So repentance is a fundamental thing. It's a, it's a basic uh, foundational doctrine of the Christian faith. Repentance uh, from dead works. Or as the NIV says, repentance from works that produce death. So this is where everything starts. In becoming a Christian, I repent. I, I turn from uh, those works that result in death, and I turn toward Christ. So there's no, there's no real coming to Christ apart from repentance. You, uh, because in, in coming to Christ, you're turning away from sin, and you're turning to him. So any idea that you could actually, you know, just come to Jesus and still, you know, keep all of your sins is the wrong idea. Repentance implies that we're turning from our sin, turning to Christ. And then he says faith, faith toward God. Now, I I think for them, especially, and and even for people in our generation, um, he says specifically faith toward God, you know, with these people, it would be easy for them to have faith in a system. We talked last week about their uh, trading relationship for ritual. And so their faith very well uh, could have easily just been in the system itself. And just like today, people can have uh, their faith is in their uh, religious system or their faith is in their denomination. Their faith is in the fact that they uh, you know, have been associated with this church since they were a child or, or something like that. But true faith is faith toward God, personal faith in God, foundational thing. So repentance, faith, and then he mentions baptism and the laying on of hands. And the laying on of hands probably is a reference to uh, the empowering of the Spirit. So baptism is our uh, place of publicly identifying with Christ. Uh, having hands laid on us is that, that place of being empowered by the Spirit uh, for service to God. And then he also mentions the resurrection from the dead, a reminder, uh, a fundamental thing to remind us that this life is not all there is. There's another world coming. There's another life coming. We have eternal life through Christ, the resurrection from the dead. But we also have to keep in mind that there is a judgment. And so, again, his point is, okay, these are the foundational things. These are the, the basic things. We all need to be established in these things, but then we need to move beyond them, not setting them aside, but keeping them there as the foundation, but then adding onto these other things uh, more and more of our uh, understanding of the Christian life. And so he says, let's move beyond these elementary principles, moving on into perfection or maturity. But then he says this, if God permits, if God permits, what an interesting thing, because he's, he's saying to them, look, you need to grow. But then he sort of says, but you can only grow if God permits. Now, why would he say that? That's a question that we need to consider. And I think the answer is this. He wants them to realize how dangerous their spiritual condition really is. And something that all of us need to realize as well is, you know, this thing that we call salvation is not to be trifled with. It's not something that we can take lightly. It's not something that we can just sort of move in and out of, you know, at will or, you know, with, uh, you know, every whim or, or whatever. This is the most serious thing in all the world. And it's so 
serious that we have to understand that if our hearts have become hardened and if we've become dull and if we're drifting away from the Lord, that's an extremely serious situation. And so I believe that the reason he says if God permits, I think he's wanting them to stop and think about the seriousness of the issue and about the uh, importance of their relationship with God and realize it's not something that I can play fast and loose with. It's something that I've got to be dead serious about and fully committed to. And so he goes on, if God permits, and then he says this, he says, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Now, verses four through six are the really difficult verses in the chapter. And like I said, (laughs) they're some of the most difficult verses in all of the Bible. And as a matter of fact, as I was preparing to teach, I was asking myself, okay, now why did I want to teach Hebrews on Sunday? Because uh, (laughs) this is really difficult, difficult stuff. Um, But we, we need to do our best to try to understand what he's talking about here. So here's the question pertains to verses four through six, the description that he gives here. The question is, who and what is he describing? Who's he talking about? And what is he describing here? Let me read to you again what he describes. He's talking about those who were once enlightened. They have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. He's describing them, but then he says, and if they fall away or falling away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Who and what is he talking about? Well, generally speaking, there are two uh, perspectives on this. And there, there are others that are uh, a little more nuanced, but I'm not gonna bother to go into those. But, but the two perspectives are simply, on the one hand, Uh, There are those who would say, well, he's obviously warning believers about the possibility of losing their salvation. And then there's uh, the other position that would say, well, he's certainly warning people about ultimately not being saved, but they can't really be believers because a believer can't lose his salvation. So he's warning people who are, uh, they have an outward appearance of being a believer, but the truth of the matter is um, they're really not deep in their hearts. So those are the two positions. He's, he's, he's speaking to believers who might lose their salvation or people that appear to be believers who in the end will prove not to be. So which is the, uh, the correct interpretation? Now, I'm going to give you my interpretation, my, my position, and uh, I, I think it's correct. Therefore, uh, I hold the position. <laughs> but not everybody will agree with me on this. So... Um, but I, I believe that the author is talking here about what we would call a, a pseudo-believer, somebody who appears to be a believer, but it isn't really necessarily a believer deep in their hearts. And as hard as it is to imagine that such people exist, they do. Um, but let me, let me give you the two reasons why I believe he's referring to a pseudo-believer. Reason number one is... If you were talking about a true believer, you would have a true believer losing their salvation. And I think that the bigger picture of Scripture does not allow for that. The bigger picture of Scripture. And the problem that I find sometimes when I'm studying and reading through commentaries on Hebrews is that people forget that Hebrews is one, uh, it's one epistle in the midst of many. So you can't just take what, what Hebrews seems to say and interpret it, you have to interpret it in light of the, of the bigger picture of Scripture. I have to understand what Hebrews is saying in light of Romans and Ephesians and First um, uh, Peter and First uh, John and all of these different things, the Gospels. I, I have to interpret it in light of that. And my conviction is that the bigger picture of Scripture 
uh, does not allow for a true believer to lose their salvation. Let me give you four passages real quickly that um, support that position. Uh, First of all, in John's gospel, the 10th chapter, verses 27 and 28, Jesus said this. He said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. To me, that's crystal clear. It's unequivocal. Uh, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. If you have eternal life, then eternal life is by definition eternal. It doesn't It's not temporary, it's eternal. So Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and then he adds, they shall never perish. Paul, in writing to the church in Rome, um, he wrote this in Romans 8, 29 and 30. And and he's kind of walking through this kind of uh, process from, from God's point of view of a person a person's salvation. For whom he foreknew, that's where it starts, he also predestined. Whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also already, past tense, has glorified. So if we're believers in Jesus today, we are in this, in this uh, process, we're in the justified place. But, Notice that he says that he uses the same terminology to speak of what we would know as the future glorification. He speaks of it as though it's already done. So I conclude from that, those who are justified presently, who were previously called and who were predestined and who were foreknown, they will also be glorified. That's a promise that uh, God's going to get us ultimately to heaven. Then Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, Paul again, writing to the church in Ephesus, he says, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. So for those who put their faith in Christ, God puts his seal on us, and his seal uh, signifies ownership. So we become the property of God. And it's the Holy Spirit who seals us. He's the Holy Spirit of promise. And notice he is the guarantee of our inheritance. So the Holy Spirit guarantees that we will reach ultimately our inheritance. And then one more passage taken from uh, John's first epistle. And John is speaking about the kind of thing that the author is is alluding to here, John's speaking about people who leave the faith. And listen to what he says in um, his uh, first epistle, second chapter, 19th verse. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. So, First reason why I believe that this is a pseudo-believer being described is because they uh, go out from us and that cannot be said of a true believer. A true believer cannot lose their salvation. That's the first reason. The second reason is that... Now, here's the argument. Some people say that the description here, once enlightened, taste of the heavenly gift, become partakers of the Holy Spirit, taste of the good word of God, the powers of the ages come. Some would argue and say, look, there's no way that that could be true of someone who's not a true believer. There's no way that somebody could have these kinds of experiences with the Holy Spirit, but yet in the end, ultimately not really be saved. But my response to that would be, All that is said here could be said of Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot had all of these things that that are described here on the surface. He was, of course, there um, with the Lord. He had that enlightening that caused him to begin to follow Jesus. Uh, He tasted the heavenly gift and um, the word of God. Of course, he sat and he listened to Jesus. He experienced the powers of the age to come. There's no reason 
for us to doubt that Judas went out in power just like the other disciples did and ministered in the power of the Holy Spirit. Yet, the truth of the matter is that Judas never truly was a believer. He never really was. Jesus said at a certain point, speaking to those 12 men who were his apostles, Judas was one of them, he says, I, I have chosen you 12 and yet one of you is a devil. Judas was never a believer. Judas was not a believer who lost his salvation. Judas was never a believer, according to Jesus. He had always hidden deep in his heart. Nobody else could see it, but God could see it. He had always hidden deep in his heart his own agenda, an agenda that was contrary to the will of God. So because of these two things that a believer cannot lose their salvation and Judas uh, could fit what it says here. Uh, I don't believe that the, the passage is talking about Christians losing their salvation. I believe that the passage is warning us against having this work of the Holy Spirit that is so profound in seeking to draw us to Christ But in the end, instead of coming to Christ as the Spirit desires us to, we resist that and we turn away from Christ or somebody does that. And I think the illustration that he gives uh, makes that clear. So look at the next two verses. For the earth, which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed whose end is to be burned. So you see the picture. Here's the ground. The rain is coming upon it. And God is expecting it to bear good fruit. But in some cases, it doesn't. And that ground that doesn't bear good fruit, it is uh, near to being cursed. And so I think the picture is here's a human heart the Spirit of God, the work of the Spirit is to testify of Jesus, to convict us of sin, to reveal who God is. All of those kinds of things are like the rain coming down. But for the person who fails to properly respond and instead of surrendering and and giving themselves over to Christ and following him, they have these experiences, but then they turn back. He speaks here of a person like that, it's impossible for them to um, be renewed to repentance. And I don't think the impossibility for renewal to repentance is on God's side. I don't think God's saying, no, there's certain people I'm not going to let repent. I think what he's describing is a person who resists the Holy Spirit to that extent could never repent at a later point. It's kind of like going to the point of no return. It's like Pharaoh. Pharaoh went to the point of no return. The, the miracles, all that God did was meant to convict Pharaoh and to bring him to repentance, but he, he continued to harden his heart, and he finally came to a place where it was settled. His heart was forever hardened, and it seems to me like that could be what he's talking about here, but I think that we have to keep this in mind as well. That it's obvious, even from what the author says, that he's talking about something unusual. He's talking about an extraordinary condition. He's not talking about the, um, something that's, that's common. And I think verse 9 makes that clear. But let me just say this before we move on to verse 9. So God's intention... or his intended response from us to the Spirit's work toward us is the fruit of continuing to love and serve Jesus. The fruit of continuing to love and serve Jesus. See, at the end of the day, the the final ultimate proof of our salvation is that we continue to love and serve Jesus. Whatever your theological position is, whether you believe a believer can lose their salvation or not, it isn't really so much the point. Uh, The main point is the Bible never gives us 
comfort in our sin, like, hey, it's okay, just stay in sin, it's going to be all right, you're saved, and don't worry about it. The Bible never gives us that. Whenever uh, the Bible addresses men in sin, it always calls us to repent, to get out of sin. So the Bible never gives us that kind of, um, uh, that, that kind of uh, security in our sin. And uh, God's word is always reminding us that true faith shows itself in continuation. True faith shows itself in continuance. So, you know, the person who, let's just say, for example, the person who today uh, says, well, um, yeah, I accepted Christ back in 1985, um, and so I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm safe, I'm saved, uh, but they have had no following Jesus for the past um, 20, however many years 1985 <laughs> is to now. <laughs> See, I can't, I can't do math this morning, my brain's not working. Um, you know, that person is, is living in a, a deceived state. There's, there's a lot of people that are in that place. And that's a place that the author is saying we, we don't want to find ourselves. Because the, the ultimate guarantee, the ultimate proof that I really am saved is that I'm continuing on with Jesus. I'm continuing to believe in him. I'm continuing to seek him. I'm continuing to follow him. And of course, implied in that is I'm continuing to obey him. When I sin, I repent and God, you know, cleanses me and I, I keep moving forward in Christ. Now, like I said, this is, I believe, um, a very uh, unusual, extraordinary, extreme situation that he's describing because look what he says in verse nine. He says, but beloved... We are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. So in some ways, and, and I want you to notice here, he goes from this very severe and strong warning, he turns immediately to encouragement. And that's the way he does all throughout this epistle. Because he's wanting to shake them up. He's wanting them to recognize the danger that they're in. He's wanting them to remember, remember early on in the, in the letter, you know, he talks about how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So on the one hand, he wants them to see the, the danger there is in, in, you know, drifting back or turning away or getting a hardened heart or a coldened heart to Jesus. But yet he doesn't want them to become discouraged to the point of giving up. So after the warning, he immediately comes back with encouragement and he says, beloved, we're confident of better things concerning you than this. So he's saying, look, this is a, this is a possibility that you need to be aware of, but you're not going there. We, we have confidence that you're not going there. And, you know, as a pastor, I would, I would want to do the same thing as well. I would want to give the, the strong warning that, hey, look, this is a possibility. You can't mess around. This is one thing that you can't play around with, although many people, I think, do not realize that. You can't just go in and out of the relationship with God. Um, you know, there, there is that point where God will hold us accountable. But to encourage we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, the things that accompany salvation. Notice that, things that accompany salvation. Salvation is accompanied by things. It, there, there are um, indicators. And the main indicator that he is pressing here is that indicator of continuing on with Jesus. Continuing to follow him. And then he says, for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end that you do not become sluggish, but Imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So look at 
just these four things that he, he talks about here. Confident of better things. And then God is not unfaithful to forget your work and labor of love. So they had, they had demonstrated true faith. They had ministered to the saints. They, they had been serving the Lord. So he says, look, no, you know, I'm, I'm warning you about this as a possibility, but I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that this is the case with you, but make sure it's not the case with you. Make sure you're following through, keeping uh, up with those things, your, your work and labor of love. God's not unjust. He, he knows all of that. He, he sees all of that. He knows that you've ministered. You know, their problem was they were suffering. They were being persecuted. They were being harassed for their faith. Things weren't going uh, for them the way they had imagined that they would go. And so now they're, they're starting to draw back. He's saying, no, don't do that. And even though you haven't uh, received the ultimate reward, God's not unjust. He knows your work. He knows what you've done. And, and there will come a day. God will vindicate you. God will recompense you for these things. He's saying that. But he says that you show the same diligence of full assurance of hope to the end that you do not become sluggish. Showing the same diligence. See, that's his, that's his exhortation all the way through. Keep your, keep your foot to the throttle. Keep going. Full, full speed. Don't slow down. Don't back off. Keep going. With the same intensity that, you know, you, you experienced as Christ got a hold of your life. Keep that going. And even, you know, listen, even when you don't feel the things that you maybe felt before, and this is, this is the danger of feelings. We have to be careful because a lot of times we let feelings control us. But the Bible really teaches us that we have to press diligently forward regardless of how we feel. Knowing that feeling isn't the primary thing. Now, I love good spiritual feelings. I wish I had those kinds of warm feelings all the time, but I don't. But it doesn't mean I let up. It means uh, despite the fact that I don't have those feelings, I keep going. I keep pressing. I do what I know is right. I do what I know is true. And I, I keep moving forward. I'm saying I, but I'm talking, I'm including others. Um. But, you know, that, that's just the way our spiritual life is. And, you know, we have the corresponding um, experience in, in our own, you know, just experience physically even. And there, there are times, those of you, you know this, if you work out or try to stay in shape or anything like that, you know, most of the time you don't really feel like doing that stuff. But you do it out of what? You do it out of discipline. You discipline yourself. There's a, there's a, you show the diligence not because you feel like it. When I, get up, when I wake up in the morning, the last thing I want to do is get out of my bed and go run five miles. That's the very last thing I want to do. But I usually do it because I know I need to. And so likewise, spiritually, we have to continue to discipline ourselves and we have to show diligence and not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience. You see, listen, this is the way every single Christian, every single believer in God, every generation of saints, this is the way it works for everybody. You need two things. You need faith and patience to ultimately inherit the promises of God. In the, in the, the Christian life, there's no, there's no shortcut. There's no e- you know, easy plan. There, there's none of this um, you know, overnight spiritual success. Just do these three things and it'll, your life will be perfect spiritually forever. You won't even have to think about it again. You know, it's like those advertisements, those diets and things, you know, lose 10 pounds this week, eat all you want, never do a bit of exercise, you know, just uh, here, take this pill and it'll take care of everything. Now, I don't think those things even work, but uh, 
anything corresponding to that in the realm of the spirit, I can tell you for sure it doesn't work. It's a long trek. It's a long distance haul. And it takes faith and patience. And he says we are to imitate those. Now, for these Hebrew Christians in the city of Jerusalem, uh, he points back to their founding father, Abraham, as his example. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, underline those words, patiently endured, he obtained the promise. So you see, what, what the writer's showing them is, that, look, this is the way the life of faith is. This is exactly what happened with Abraham. Abraham received a promise when he was 75 years old. It wasn't fulfilled for 25 years. 25 years later, that promise was fulfilled. But then that wasn't the end of it. There were other things and more time uh, involved in the, the final you know, fulfillment of all that God was doing but he patiently endured, and as he remained faithful, he then obtained the promise. And then he says, for men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. The word immutable, you know, means uh, unchangeableness. So God's promise is certain. It's unchangeable. God wanted to show how certain the promise was, so he confirmed it with an oath. So you've got two immutable things. One, God's promise. God's promise is immutable. That means it's, it doesn't change. When he gives a promise, it's, you can bet on it. You can stake your life on it. But not only does God give a promise, he adds to the promise an oath. So God not only promises, but then he swears that his promise is going to come to pass. So he's saying, you know, God's given us double assurance, really. And then he adds, of course, that God cannot lie, for it is impossible for God to lie. Since that's the case, we have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So we come back around to Melchizedek. Remember the author says, I want to tell you more about the the priestly ministry of Jesus. I want to tell you about the priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek, but you're, unfortunately you're spiritually dull and you need to, you need to uh, advance before I can really share this information with you. And so now he comes back, and as we move forward from here, he's going to go into that. But a few things in closing in verses 13 through 20. So he uses Abraham, and he shows how Abraham patiently endured. And his point is that we must patiently wait as well. We must patiently wait as well. And this is true for the promises that God has made to us personally, whatever they might be. Maybe God's given you a promise. And because of the delay in the fulfillment of that promise, there's been a temptation to disbelief. There's been a temptation to uh, wander away. There's been a, a temptation even to just give up. You know, I, I've, I've just heard so many stories recently of people who, um, you know, because things haven't worked out the way they thought they should, they just decided, well, uh, that's it. I'm, I'm giving up my faith. How, how can you do that? How can you just give up your faith? We're not to give up. We're to hold on and believe those promises, even though they are delayed or they seem like they're delayed. They're only delayed from our side. They're not delayed. God's, he's not late. He knows exactly when the promise needs to be fulfilled. But we don't know. And so we think that it should have been fulfilled already. So whether it's a personal thing or let me just take it out 
bigger and, and more collectively, you know, for the church in the world today. I think it's pretty obvious that hard times are upon us. And they're coming our way as followers of Christ. And there, there, will, there will be temptation for people to say, well, you know, I didn't sign up uh, to get persecuted as a Christian. I didn't sign up to, to lose my job because of my faith and things like that. And so there's going to be a temptation to, to back off. There's going to be a temptation to compromise. There's going to be a temptation to... draw back into a comfortable position and to not persevere. And God help us to not do that. Come what may, in, in the, the culture, in the culture's relationship to the church, come what may, even if it's just full tilt persecution, which of course has happened, is happening currently in all kinds of places all around the world, and always has happened since the very beginning. It just hasn't really happened so much here in, in the sense that we're seeing it start to develop today. We have uh, this woman, whether you agree with the, the clerk in Kentucky or not, about her position, she's in jail because, uh, as a Christian, her conscience won't allow her to sign these certificates. Maybe you disagree. Maybe you think she should have done it or she should have resigned or what. Whatever your position is, I'm not here to argue that. I'm here to just simply point out one thing. She's in jail because of her conviction about what the Bible says. And I would imagine that she's the first of many that will go. And so that's the world that we are now entering into. And the pressure is going to be to compromise. The pressure is going to be to draw back. But the exhortation of Hebrews and why Hebrews is particularly relevant to us at this time is because that's the environment that these people were living in. They were living in an environment of persecution. And because the promises that they had put their trust in were not coming through in the time frame that they thought and getting them out of the predicament they were in, they were thinking, well, maybe we ought to just go back to something that's more comfortable. That's the pressure. That's the temptation that will come. And that's where we have to hold our ground. I read a quote on Twitter last night, and I want to share it with you because I think it just relates to what we're talking about. Scripture shows no interest in being popular or relevant. That is, in being adapted, revised, or censored to align with ever-shifting times. We, wa- we must remain countercultural wherever the culture and the truth are at odds. It is this posture that makes Christians truly relevant in the culture. So this is where we're at. The Scripture and culture are more and more at odds. And we can't compromise to accommodate the culture. We have to stand firm. And that will bring us into conflict. It'll put us in many ways in hot water. What are we to do? We must do what they were exhorted to do. We must do what every generation of believers has done. We must persevere in faith. We must continue to trust God Faith in God's promises shows that we are going on to maturity. You see, the mature person is the person who is standing on God's word and being faithful. That's how we, one of the ways that we can measure our growth. Am I becoming more mature? Am I able to persevere through the challenges? A deepening faith is seen by a greater endurance, a greater perseverance, a greater ability to go through hard times and to be faithful to the Lord, to continue to trust him. And so, like I said, whether that be just in personal uh, circumstances that you find yourself in, or if we're looking at it collectively as the entire Christian uh, church, the body of Christ throughout the nation, around the world, um, The call is, as we read here, to patiently endure and know that ultimately we will 
receive the promise. And this is the hope that we have that anchors the soul. This is what anchors our soul. And Jesus, as he says here in verse 19, he is uh, entered behind the veil. He's the forerunner. And he's, he's the, the guarantee to us. We're to keep looking to Jesus and knowing that he is faithful. And just as uh, he persevered and God raised him up and, and glorified him, so we have confidence in him that that is true for us, that he is going to do that. And so as we close, let me remind you of just a few things that we have through our faith in Christ. We have our sins forgiven. Our sins are forgiven. So whatever else is not happening like we wish it was, remember that. Your sins are forgiven. You're in good shape. You're no longer under the wrath of God. You're in, uh, you're in his good favor. Our sins are forgiven. Secondly, remember, we are members of God's family. We're part of God's family. And we're, we're as this book's going to remind us later, we're pilgrims in this world. We're sojourners. This isn't our permanent residence. We're, we're temporarily here. We belong to another world. We belong to another family. We're part of God's family. And then remember also that God intends for us to go deeper in our knowledge of him. And since that's his intention, we can expect to go through hard times because hard times take us deeper into our experience with God. That's just a reality of life. When we go through challenges and we have to cling to Jesus, what happens? We go deeper with him. We get to know him in ways that we previously had not known him. And so he wants to take us deeper with him. And then remember also that we have work to do for the kingdom. We have to keep going. Like I said earlier, we just have to keep going, pedal to the metal. We have to just full board. Just, you know, don't, don't let what's going on around you, whether it's personal or the bigger picture, don't let that stop you from doing what God has called you to do. Because he does have a work and a labor of love for all of us to be engaged in. Let's not forget that. And finally, remember, and this is the, big, this is the bigger promise. Now, for these Hebrews, you know what happened? Let me just tell you. Their city was destroyed. They were, they were in Jerusalem before the destruction of the city. And right at the end of the letter, he reminds them that here... We have no continuing city. We seek the one to come. So that place that they were looking to go back to and find security in, now, of course, God knew that place wasn't going to be around for much longer. And it wasn't. It was probably just a matter of three or four years before the Romans uh, besieged the city and destroyed it. And their hope, my point is this, their hope was not in an earthly paradise. Their hope was in the kingdom. And so remember that for us too. Our hope is not in, uh, you know, listen. Our hope is not in um, recapturing America for traditional values or going back to the ideas of the forefathers. You know, that, that's not our hope. That's highly unlikely that that would ever happen again. Our hope is a greater hope than that. Our hope is that Jesus will come again and all of God's promises will then be revealed. That's what we're living for. Not an earthly kingdom. Not a, not a situation on earth where, you know, life is rosy and everything's fine and we can just settle in and enjoy ourselves. All of those things <laughs> have been nice. And they are nice when we have the opportunities. But the reality is 
there's a huge cosmic conflict and we are right in the middle of it. We're part of it. And it's all going to culminate with Jesus coming back as the judge and the one who's going to set up God's kingdom. That is what we are waiting for. That's what we must persevere through to. Whether, and listen, you know, whether that means we're going to actually see it because it's going to happen in our lifetime or not, we persevere all the way through. Either we're going to see it because it's going to happen in our lifetime or we're going to see it because our lifetime is going to end and then we're going we're to enter it there. But let's not forget that in the world we will have tribulation. If we start thinking that the world's supposed to be different, it's supposed to be accommodating to Christians and it's supposed to be a comfortable place where we can just settle down and have a good old time, our, our understanding is not New Testament. And I'm not wishing for, you know, hard times to come upon us, but I think reality tells us that they are on their way. So when the temptation comes to draw back, to pull back, to loosen our grip, to reconsider, to whatever, let's remember we need, just as every other saint has needed, we need faith and patience. And as we hold on, we will inherit those promises. But even though we wait for the ultimate fulfillment, the big picture of the return of Christ, don't forget, your sins are forgiven. You're part of God's family. God wants to take you deeper with him, and he's got plenty of work for us to do. So God help us to do that. Lord, we pray that these things... Lord, we thank you for that word as you gave that strong warning through your apostle here, but then you reminded um, your readers that you are confident of better things. And thank you, Lord, that you're with us. And, And Lord, I would just pray for anyone today that maybe because of trials, because of difficulties, because of whatever, um, unrealized promises or whatever the case might be who have been tempted to go back. Lord, I pray that you would remind them today of the necessity of persevering, of enduring. And Lord, help us to do that very thing as we continue to walk with you. Help us, Lord, to be like Abraham. Help us to Endure patiently, knowing that we will undoubtedly, certainly receive the promise in your time. Lord Jesus, come quickly, we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.